Good evening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for this morning at lunch. Thank you for the kind words that you have shared, the cards and the prayers. And I appreciate all of it. I want you to know that it's very much appreciated. Makes uh, all of this a lot harder, but it's very much appreciated. It's been an interesting last couple of months, and especially the last couple of weeks, because like I told uh, Eddie, half of the work I'm doing in the office is for Oldham Lane. I'm teaching Bible class on Wednesday nights and you know, still doing the podcast and TV show, but the other half is preparing for Walnut Street, and it's, it's interesting. It's different. Your, your mind is kind of in two places. And so... In sitting down and, and, and preparing lessons, you're thinking about, okay, what's the first sermon there going to be? What's your last sermon here going to be? You know, what, what do you want to say to these people as you say, see you later? Uh, not goodbye, but see you later. What, what is it that you want to say? And, and, and so I thought if I had one shot, what it would be. And that's kind of where I'm coming from tonight. Uh, I'm not very good at hellfire and brimstone sermons, but you could probably classify this as one of those. And then as Clay put it this morning, my first sermon here was play to win, and our sermon next Sunday morning will be what is your win as we look at the final installment in our series, It's Your Move. You got to define what your win is. We're going to talk about that next week. So I hope that you'll engage tonight as we so we talk about and think about what it's going to be like this first five minutes after death. Loved ones will weep over my silent face, and dear ones will clasp me in sad embrace. Shadows and darkness will fill the place five minutes after I die. Faces that sorrow I will not see, voices that murmur will not reach me. But where, oh where, will my spirit be five minutes after I die? Not to repair the good I lack, fixed to the goal of my chosen track. No time to repent, no turning back, five minutes after I die. Mated forever with my chosen throng, long is eternity, oh, so long. Then woe is me if my soul be wrong, five minutes after I die. You ever thought about what life will be like right after you die? You ever thought about what death will bring five minutes after you die? I mean, I realize we don't like to think about much uh, about death. I realize that, you know, the living don't want to talk too much about the dying. However, humanity is the only species that knows it's going to die. And the Bible is replete with passages telling us how to live until we die. Therefore, I think it would behoove us to talk about it, to think about it, to ponder it. Man has long been interested in the origin of species, how we began, where we came from. But we should be even more concerned about where we're going. There was a time when you were not, but there will never be a time when you will not be. Where you came from is settled. Where you're going may not be. I heard a preacher say it like this. If you're not prepared to die, then you're not prepared to live. No one is ready to to live life until they have learned to no longer be afraid of death. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19, it reads like this. Now there was a rich man 
and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoying himself in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. Not only that, the dogs also were coming and licking his sores. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's arms. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he raised his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his arms. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he has been comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set, so that those who want to go over from here to you will not be able, nor will any people cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I request of you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order to, that, they, that they may hear or that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment as well. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, there's a lot to sort out in this passage, but if it's anything, it's a study in contrast. It's a contrast between life and death and eternity. And let me just say, before we go any further, a few things. First of all, I don't believe that we can base our entire afterlife theology on this one passage, okay? If you want to do that, I won't argue with you too much. I just don't believe that that is... Uh, exactly what is being presented here. I don't think that Jesus is trying to tell us this is exactly what's going to happen when you die, and this is what you can expect always for every person. Maybe, but I'm not sure that we can base all of our afterlife theology on this passage. For starters, is it a parable or is it Jesus giving us a window into eternity? Some would say, well, it can't be a parable because you have uh, a person named. There's a proper name here given, Lazarus, right? And Jesus didn't do that in his parables. But it would be interesting to say the least if Jesus were giving us insight into what happens when a person dies. If he's trying to say this is exactly what happens after death because he didn't really do that either. Jesus typically spoke in parables He's typically used metaphors. And so my point is that whether this is a parable or not, it's rather unique either way. But aside from the fact that a proper name is given to one of the characters, it really does read like one of Jesus's other parables. I mean, he's asking some key, uh, some key questions, making some key points that, that often gets lost because we only focus in one direction. For instance, the rich man lost his opportunity at charity when he died. He should have been charitable when he was on earth, but he ignored the poor and destitute every day. Then one day it was too late. And because of torment, the rich man begs for mercy, but there was none to be found. Then he begs Abraham to go back and warn his brothers so that they don't end up like him. And Abraham responds, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham replies, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And I believe that's a key line in understanding this whole story. That is key. Who is Abraham? He is patriarch of the Israelite people. 
the Jewish people. Could it be that Lazarus represents the people that God will gather to himself and gather to Abraham who will enjoy prosperity because they accepted the atoning work of Jesus Christ? And could it be that the rich man represents those stubborn, hard-hearted religious leaders who refuse to see the people the way God did, and thus they pay the ultimate price. My point is, there's more to this account than just a glimpse of the afterlife. And I'm not comfortable with saying that every faithful Christian is going to literally rest in Abraham's bosom when they die. That's where we place the emphasis, but that really doesn't seem to be Jesus' main thrust. And here's something else. Excuse me. The biblical emphasis is not on where we go when we die. I'm sure you've noticed that. No, the biblical emphasis is on resurrection. The scriptural emphasis is on the second coming of Jesus and what happens afterwards. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't have something to say about where we go when we die. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Solomon says that the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Paul says in Philippians 1, 21 and following, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul believed that upon death, he would go to be with Jesus. And where is Jesus? Well, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in the heavenly realms or the unseen places. So if you were to die right at this minute and you were to back me in a corner and say, Chris, where am I going to go when I die? I think we could say with some confidence that your spirit is going to depart and go be with the Lord in the unseen realm. Of course, Paul talks about how that's not the final fate of the spirit, you know, that it's naked, it's unclothed, and it will eventually be joined with the body. You know, what does it look like to rest with God and Jesus in the heavenly realm? What will that be like? I don't know. You don't know. None of us really knows because the Bible just doesn't give us clarity on that. We try to fill in the gaps. You see that at funerals. You hear that at funerals. You hear somebody talking about, you know, where our loved one is up in heaven fishing right now or hunting or, or having a good time and partying. And, and certainly I don't want to disparage those thoughts at the funeral at that time because people are trying to cope with grief in any way that they can. But we do have to admit that, that these things are more fantasy than reality because the biblical record just doesn't give us those details. It doesn't say anything about that. We don't find any basis for that stuff in Scripture. It's unseen. It's a mystery. And maybe that's on purpose. Perhaps God designed it this way because where the dead are now is not really what should receive the most emphasis anyway. Maybe our hope is not just in what happens when we die. Perhaps our hope should be in what happens when Jesus returns. Anyway, all that being said, we cannot deny that there is some profound truth related to life, death, and eternity found in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. As I stated a moment ago, it's a study in contrast. And first of all, you have the contrast of life. Notice verses 19 through 21 again. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoying himself in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. Not only that, the dogs also were coming and licking his sores. So the first thing you notice is the inequity. Rich, poor sickness, health. The rich man had it all. The poor man had nothing. 
The rich man filled his stomach while the poor man just wanted the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Every day, the rich man would open his gate and step over Lazarus to get to wherever he was going. Life was very different for these two. The rich man had the best life. The poor man had no life. You remember Payne Stewart? Anybody remember that name? Payne Stewart was well known for his attire. He wore the ivy cap and the knickerbockers. Uh, he's also from Springfield, Missouri, so he was you know, very much uh, revered there. And uh, when I was living in Missouri, you heard a lot about Payne Stewart. A lot of things were named after Payne Stewart. But Payne Stewart was living in Florida in 1994 and was traveling to Dallas, I believe, to look at building a golf course for SMU. But on the way, the plane, the Learjet that he was flying on, lost contact with the tower. The tower was trying to get in touch with them to get them to change radio frequencies, but the pilots didn't respond. It seemed that the plane was on autopilot, but veering off course ever so slightly. So finally, after several attempts to reach them, some F-16 fighter jets were sent up to check it out. And when they got next to the plane, flying next to it, they looked over and they noticed frost and condensation on the cockpit windows, which indicated a loss of cabin pressure. And it seemed that everybody on board was incapacitated due to hypoxia. Just a slight moment of, of not reacting and putting on the oxygen mask could could render you incapacitated. And that's what had happened. All the F-16s could do is fly alongside the plane until it ran out of gas and plummeted into the earth. And one of the fighter pilots said, it's a very helpless feeling to know that you just you can't do anything. You just have to watch it crash and burn and every boy on board die. And I think about that as a Christian, I think about that as, as a disciple. I can spectate or I can participate, right? Because every day I come in contact with people that are incapacitated by sin, that are, that are flying along thinking everything is okay when at some point they're going to crash and burn. And what am I doing about that? opportunity was laid at the rich man's feet. He didn't even have to go looking for it. You know, sometimes you, you, you bump the tree with your cart and the fruit falls right in it. And that's what had happened for the rich man. He didn't have to go looking for or create an occasion to serve. It was right in front of him. But sadly, he chose to spectate rather than participate. But death is where the, the earthly inequity ends. Because death is no respecter of persons. It is an equal opportunity destroyer. Rich, poor, healthy, or well, we're all going to die. You can go, I've said this before, you can go and check the mortality rates for Taylor County. You're going to find they're 100%. You've heard people say that the only two certainties in life are death and taxes. That's not exactly true. There have been many people throughout history who have successfully avoided paying their taxes, at least for some time. But no one has successfully avoided death. There was a rich merchant who lived in Baghdad, who had a servant come to him and he said, sir, I, I need your help. And the merchant replied, okay, what do you need? And the servant said, sir, I, I was in the marketplace the other day and I saw a figure. This figure bumped into me and I turned and looked and sir, it was death. I looked death in the face. The merchant said, are you sure? He said, yes, I'm sure. So I need a horse so that I can flee and go to Samaria because death 
is after me. And so the merchant said, take the best horse I've got and go to Samaria. And so the servant did. The merchant went down to the marketplace himself and bumped into this, this figure. And he recognized it as death, the one that his servant had described. And so he went over to him, he tapped him on the shoulder, and he said, sir, can I ask you a question? Are, are you death? And the figure said, yes, I am. And the merchant said, well, can I ask you a question? Why did you scare my servant today? You really bothered him. And death said, I, I didn't mean to frighten him. I was just surprised to see him here. I have an appointment with him tomorrow in Samara. Moral of the story, you never flee death. Sooner or later, we all face it, both rich, poor, whether you're a beggar, whatever, we all die. Look at verse 22 again. Now, it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's arms, and the rich man also died and was buried. The rich man died and was buried. If the rich man had died in this day and age, I can imagine they would have had an elaborate funeral for him. Maybe they did back then too. A silk-lined casket, the best spray laid on top, a, a, a beautiful marble headstone. You know what happened to the beggar? Well, it doesn't say that he was buried because you disposed of sickly poor people in this day and time. You took them to the garbage dump outside of town that was always burning to get rid of the waste Sometimes you didn't even make it to the garbage dump. The dogs would consume the body. The poor man died, and it was more like good riddance. The rich man died, and there was grief. It was a big deal. But in death, we see that the inequity continued, at least at their funeral. You've probably heard of Dr. James Dobson. He's the founder of, of uh, Focus on the Family. What a lot of people don't know is Dr. James Dobson was a pretty fair basketball player in his time. And he got to play a little bit with Pistol Pete Maravich. And if you have never heard of Pistol Pete, you need to Google him because he was doing some things in his day and age that nobody was doing. He was a phenomenal basketball player. And one day he and James Dobson are playing basketball. And James Dobson says, I asked him, I said, how you doing, Pete? Because he was laughing and having a good time. And Pistol Pete said, I, I'm great. Having the time of my life. Never been better. And shortly after that, he fell over dead. You may not get a wake-up call. One minute you may be laughing and having a good time, the next minute you may be dead. Instead of constantly preparing for things here on earth, maybe think about preparing for eternity before it's too late. Look at verse 23 again. It says, And in Hades he raised his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his arms. So there is a reversal of fortune in eternity for these two. The rich man is now the poorest and most destitute of all, and the poor beggar finds treasure far greater than anything he could have had here on earth. No more iniquity. Inequity. Death is the great equalizer. Whether you are rich or poor, young or old, American, European, male or female, death comes to us all. And verse 23 and following brings to light a sobering truth, and that is we don't really die. We don't really die. Death isn't death. Five minutes after you die, you're still alive. You're conscious. You're not extinct. You don't become worm dirt. The rich man found himself in a place of sensual misery. Look at verse 25 again. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. The rich man 
could feel the torment. I don't know if it were licking flames. I don't know what it felt like, but Jesus describes hell as a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it seems as though there is physical pain and there's certainly emotional pain, right? The rich man took his memory with him. There was a recognition of where he was, which means that if you end up in misery for all eternity, you're probably going to remember this sermon. You'll probably remember the prayers of your mother. You'll probably remember all the opportunities you had to answer the gospel. You'll remember every time you stubbornly refused Jesus and the gospel message. You'll have eternity to sit and think about it. Here's another insight that's pretty sobering. Five minutes after death, your fate is sealed. Five minutes after death, you will know your destiny, and that destiny is sealed as evidenced by the fact that there was a great chasm between torment and paradise. The rich man wanted mercy, but it was too late. He was in a fixed state. He wanted to change the outcome, but that should have been done while he was on earth. In eternity, it's too late. Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, if the rich man is in torment and the poor man is in paradise and the two of them aren't going anywhere, then what's the day of judgment for? What's the day of judgment? It's common for us as Christians to think of the day of judgment as a day where we're all going to line up single file and we're all going to take our turn pleading our case before the big judge. We kind of see this heavenly courtroom scene playing out in our minds. And at that time, Jesus will say either go in or he'll maybe pull a lever and a trap door will hurtle us into hell. We need to recalibrate our thinking. And instead of thinking of the day of judgment or the day of the Lord as some fixed time in the future where our deeds are going to be weighed weighed on the scales of justice, I think we need to think of the day of the Lord as the time in which we live in right now. Right now is the day of judgment. Just as salvation is not a moment but an ongoing event, the day of judgment is not just a moment. Today is the day of the Lord. It's an ongoing event as well. Salvation will be rewarded. Judgment will be declared. There will be a day when that happens. When is that day? I have no clue. You have no clue. And despite what the uh, end-time forecasters say, they don't have a clue either, as evidenced by the fact that they're constantly wrong, right? However, That's not what should occupy our time anyway, because the truth of the matter is the day of the Lord is here. It is now. Ladies and gentlemen, today is the day of the Lord. Salvation and judgment are today, not tomorrow. Jesus has come. The kingdom is here. We are living in the last days. The sheep and the goats are already being separated. There is no mystery. There's nothing else to reveal. The standard has been set. The kingdom is at hand. If you're in, great. If you're not, then get in. What are you waiting for? Jesus, to come back to earth. If that's what you're waiting for, well, it's going to be too late then. Prepare now. There will be no other opportunity. You're not going to stand before the Lord and plead your case. There is no trial. There is no courtroom. The accuser, Satan, won't be there. I mean, he's already been thrown into the lake of fire. The day of judgment is a time of sentencing, not a time where evidence is still being considered. So the time to prepare is now. It's like the young man that was at, his, at odds with his, with his parents and, and he, was, he was sowing his wild oats, doing things he shouldn't be doing and he, he grabbed his car keys to, to go out and do some other things he shouldn't be doing and just as he grabbed his car keys, there was a, a gospel tract 
that his parents had set there. You know, what is the gospel? Obeying the gospel, something like that. And he took it and he was so angry that he crumpled it up and he threw it in the trash. And he said, why do keep people keep trying to give me these things? He said, somebody at work tried to give me one of these. Where can I go to get away from these things? And his mother said, well, in hell nobody will give you a tract, which is probably true. Do you know what hell is? It's a place of torment. But not just that, it's the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But not just that. It's not just a place of fire and brimstone. Hell is relational. It's the one place where the omnipresent God is not. And it's a place void of any hope. But here's the deal. You don't have to go there. In fact, you're going to have to make an effort to get there. If you end up in hell, you're going to have to do some climbing to get there. You'll have to climb over this service to get there. The songs that have been sung, the the prayers that have been prayed, you're going to have to climb over God's word to get to hell. You're going to have to climb over this sermon to get there. You're going to have to climb over your own conscience that's telling you right now that maybe you ought to do something different with your life. You're going to have to climb over the prayers of the people who have been praying for you and for your soul. You're going to have to climb over Mount Calvary if you're going to get to hell. And you're going to have to climb over the cross of Christ if you're going to get to hell. But once you get there, you won't leave. Where will you be five minutes after you die? Now, this may be the last worship service you ever attend. This may be the last sermon you ever hear. So let me say this loud and clear. Hell is real, but you don't have to go there. Heaven is real, and I'll be there. Are you going to join me? Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?